Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvroski. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvroski. On this week's episode, we are joined by the author of Radical Candor and Just Work, Kim Scott, and the co-founder and CEO of Just Work, Trier Bryant. We talk about how to create an inclusive and equitable culture, the framework for Just Work, and turning pain into purpose. We at Elite High Performance specialize in building high-impact leaders who turn their teams into happy high performers that achieve their goals. So if you're looking for any research-backed high-performance leadership strategies, head on over to EliteHighPerformance.com. We offer leadership development programs, one-on-one leadership coaching, keynote speaking, psychological safety assessments, and more. So you can check all that out at EliteHighPerformance.com. And if you like the episode, please rate and review and subscribe to the Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. This is an incredible episode with so much you can take from it. And here's the interview with Kim Scott and Trier Bryant. We are back. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski, and as always, the yin to my yang, Susan Hobson is here. Susan, how are you? I am fabulous. So fired up for our interview today and our fabulous guests, plural. So let's get this party started, shall we? Absolutely. And I mean, as always, we have to start with a quote. But of course. And so I got this quote from a new book called No Bad Parts by Dr. Richard Schwartz. And obviously, we talk a lot about parts work on the show. And the quote is, our parts can sometimes be disruptive or harmful. But once they're unburdened, they return to their essential goodness. When we learn to love all our parts, we can learn to love all people. And that will contribute to the healing of the world. Now I see it. I totally get why. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And obviously, it's put us on a mission. And we have two incredible guests with us, the co-founders of Just Work, Kim Scott and Trier Bryant. How are you? Hello. Hello. We're doing well, or at least I'm doing well. How are you, Trier? I'm great. I am great. How are you You all? You are great. (laughs) (laughs) So for anybody in our audience who's new to these fabulous guests, I kind of feel like before we launch in, that's where we should should begin. Would you guys mind sharing a little bit about yourselves and the awesome work that you are doing in the world? Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Who wants to go first? (laughs) Kim, you go ahead. All right. So I'm Kim Scott, and I am a writer now. I had a my whole business career, my whole career in management was really just one giant ploy to subsidize my novel writing habit. So I wrote a book called Radical Candor and a book called Just Work. Before that, I was uh, I was at Google and Apple, 
And uh, before that, I did three failed startups. So Google and Apple worked out a little better, but I learned most <laughs> of the hard lessons out of the three failed startups. So that's me in a nutshell. And I'm Trier Bryant. I am the co-founder CEO of Just Work. And um, I am a, I call myself a recovering engineer. Oh my gosh, I love a, that. A, a combat vet. I spent seven years active duty in the military and the Air Force. And then transitioned to Goldman Sachs on Wall Street and then pivoted into tech where I've been at companies like Twitter and Astra and now on a mission to create more equitable workplaces with Kim because we all we should be optimizing for our talent so that they can do their best work. And one of the things I learned from the military is you take care of your people and your people take care of the mission. And there's so many missed opportunities for organizations on taking care of their people. And that's- I want to dive into Amen, that. Amen, sister, preach. But but first, Trier, <laughs> so I'm wearing a, my purple pocket square as a quasi-purple okay. flag today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the purple flag and how you use it? Oh. I, I love that. Kim, I think we should get pocket squares. I, I love <laughs> Kim has her flags. Yeah. I, Yours is I much more elegant. It. Yeah, I have a post-it. We got to get pocket squares. So it we call them bias disruptors. And we encourage oh. leaders and teams to disrupt bias in the moment so that we can, it doesn't perpetuate um, and metastasize into something larger, but we can handle it in the moment. And one of the things that we know is that bias is a pattern, which means that we can, you know, disrupt it and we can stop it. So when it comes to bias disruptors, we need three things. The first is a shared language. So shared language, uh, as Rob said, we use purple flag on our team, but it can be a, a word, a phrase, a gesture that everyone uses. And when that happens, you know that someone has just noticed bias. We have teams that use stop sign, bias alert. There's a team that throws up a peace sign, but it should be something that the team agrees upon, that the leader doesn't just pick and put onto the team, but together, like, you know, what is something that everyone can commit to? So then after the, you have your shared language, your shared vocabulary, it is a shared norm. And this is really important because once bias is flagged, that's where things may get a little uncomfortable because like, what do you do next? Like, what do you say when you don't know what to say? What do you do when you don't know what to do? And so the shared norm that we recommend is first, say thank you, because it does take courage to flag someone's bias. Right. We like mm. to say calling them in versus calling someone out. But then the next is you're going to either say, hey, I get it. Thanks for flagging that. You know, I've been working on my inclusive language and not saying guys, which Susan, now that we have our purple, <laughs> we purple flag. You know, you said guys, we're so excited to have you guys on the show, right? Yeah. So like on our inclusive language or it's, hey, I don't quite understand what you flagged. Can we connect after the meeting so that we right. can? But in this Zoom environment, it's been great because you can drop something into the chat. You can drop a link, explain it. People can read it. Everyone gets it and we move on so we can continue to get shit done. And then the third thing that teams need is a shared commitment. When you start doing this, it, you're going to be able to flag this bias very often. But if you get to the end of the meeting and you haven't, pause and reflect. Um, Kim and I will do this after the after this recording. We always pause and say, hey, we didn't flag anything in this meeting. Let's revisit and literally think about, did we, was there something that we missed? So shared vocabulary, shared norm, and shared commitment. 
will get you your uh, bias disruptors. And the cool thing is you're disrupting the bias. You're not disrupting the meeting. This goes pretty fast. You're still going to get shit done. Yeah. And in fact, remember the thing that's, am I allowed to curse, by the way? Absolutely. Okay. You're in the locker room now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Rip. So you, you want to make sure that you, that, that you are, you know, not spending the whole meeting on bias, but that you are disrupting it. Because if we don't disrupt it, we're going to reinforce the pattern. Mm -hmm. And you got to remember that the dis the the thing that is disruptive to your your team's ability to get stuff done is the bias. It's not mm -hmm. the disruption of the bias. It's the bias itself, and that's what we got to fix. I feel like where I want to dig with this is just to understand the passion that I'm feeling behind the words that you're sharing with us on these topics. We talk a lot about this here at the Leadership Launchpad Project. You know, our whole core belief is like adversity is the opportunity for growth dressed up and disguised as adversity, right? We're big believers in turning that pain into purpose, right? And the purpose being growth. So what, may I ask, has inspired you guys to go on this type of mission out in the world? You all. I did. Um, I did, guys, again. You all. <laughs> it's okay. These See, this is the thing. These are deeply ingrained habits of speech, and it's hard to change them, and it takes yeah. some persistence. Some persistence. I came from locker room, so I know this one's going to be a doozy for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to work on it. I use sticky notes because they're what you guys are describing is actually a neurolinguistic tool, right? Yes. We call them anchors. Yes. Neurolinguistic programming. Uh, we call them anchors, and I do throw these up anytime I'm trying to reprogram something on my autopilot. So I am loving that. I'm going to use that with my clients for sure. But back to the inspiration, right, behind this mission that you guys are so passionately on. You know, uh, we both have many, many, many stories, but I'll, I'll start with the story that prompted me to write Just Work, and, uh, and Trier has uh, incredible stories as well. But, the, you know, if you, if you write a book about feedback, which Radical Candor was, and you're going to get a lot of it, and indeed I did. And some of the most impactful feedback that I got happened when I was Shortly after the book came out, I was doing a talk at a uh, at a tech company in San Francisco, and the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade, someone I like and respect enormously, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech or in, in any other sector, frankly. And she pulled me aside after the meeting, and she said, Kim, I'm excited about Radical Candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to put it into practice than it is for you. She went on to explain that as soon as she would offer anybody even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And as soon as she said it to me, I had four realizations at the same time. The first realization was that that I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I imagined myself to be, that I aspired to be. I had failed even to notice the extent to which she had to show up unfailingly pleasant and cheerful at every meeting I was ever at with her. And believe me, in that period of time, she had what to be pissed off about as, as we yeah. all do at work, but she was not allowed to show it. It was not safe for her to show it. So I hadn't, I hadn't been an upstander because I hadn't even noticed that. 
The second thing I realized was that I had been in denial, not only about the things that were happening to her, but the things that were happening to me as a woman in the workplace. I think in part because I never wanted to think of myself as as a victim, but even less than wanting to think of myself as a victim that I want to think of myself as a perpetrator. And I was probably deepest in denial about the, the ways in which I had caused harm for other people to other people who I had worked with, which was not my intention ever, but, and yet I had done it and I, and I couldn't fix it if I was not willing to notice it. And last but not least, I realized that as a leader, I had failed to create these just work environments in which everybody could do the best work of their lives and enjoy working together. And, and part of the reason uh, why I had, I had failed to do that was because I had not you know, when, when you design the systems that, that, that are going to become your team's operating system, if you don't consciously design them for justice, you're going to wind up with systemic injustice. So that was, those were the revelations. That feedback prompted a whole other book and a whole other company. So that's, that's my story. Chair, do you have something to share? Yeah. Yeah, for me, I appreciate the question, Susan, because I think it's kind of two parts. One, I think that there's just something ingrained in me of taking care of people. I have just always had that natural just instinct of like a kid getting bullied and standing up and being like, why are we being mean to them? Right. Mm-hmm. And, but professionally, what I will say is the practices that we have in organizations outside of the military are so are just not aligned with the needs of the actual employees and talent. And so going from the military and so going from the military where taking care of my troops meant was an extension of them, including their families. Like you're deployed, you know, that your family is getting checked in on your spouse, your kids. If they, if I, I had, I had troops where their kids were anorexic and we were all in a room together solving it. Wow. Also abuse, whether you're in financial debt, not able to pay your bills. So to have that type of leadership, to be under that leadership and to provide that leadership. Then when I transitioned into into the civilian sector outside of the military, I was just like, what are we doing here? We can do better. And I just feel that people deserve that level of care and um, commitment so that you can show up and do the best work. And for me, particularly and all the intersections that I sit in as a black woman, it's hard when organizations don't get it right because mm-hmm. I'm in a group that's marginalized that has that if, if an organization's gonna get it wrong, it's it's felt that much more acutely for those from underrepresented groups. Right, right. Yeah, I kind of feel like this is the space that we really need to dig into. Why is it so hard for us to get that we need to care about each other in the context of business? Because I'm still. I'm still trying to figure this out. This one out myself. So, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, what are we up against here? Why is it so hard for our leaders to to just get that basic human fundamental in the context of business? Yeah. Well, there's two things. Let's think about how we learn. Right. We either learn what to do or we learn what not to do, uh-huh. and we don't have a lot of positive examples of what to do, and so we fall back on what not to do. Uh-huh. But just because you know something that you're not going to do, it, it doesn't mean that you know how to fill that gap or to do something differently. Uh-huh. And so we we talk about very simple, practical solutions. Um, with our clients and in organizations, like I'll give you an example, you know, um, 
we just had Eid. They just finished, uh, you know, celebrating in the Muslim culture and faith. And so something as simple as when my, you know, for folks that celebrated that are Muslim that celebrated Ramadan or any other type of, you know, um, when they were fasting, I would fast with them. And would send an email to the team and the leader saying, hey, in support of, you know, those that are celebrating, I'm fasting with them. And here's some best practices, right? Schedule meetings over mealtimes. Typically you wouldn't, right? To be respectful, but we'd love a breakfast or lunch meeting to make the time go by. At the end of the day, our energy may be a little low because we haven't eaten all day, right? And in a couple of days, I'm probably going to be a little hangry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, expectations, right? But it's just like that awareness, like the cultural competency and awareness, and it goes so, so far. And so there's, you know, it's subtle changes, but yet significant impact that we can have with our folks if we just pause and we think and we're intentional about our interactions. You know, I think one of the things I've learned from working with people who who have served in the military is the extent to which the, the military, leadership training in the military really understands this in a way that, that leadership training in the civilian sector does not and understands the importance of caring at a very oh. human personal level. Uh, and I, I remember when I was, I was working at Google and there was a person on my team who is a Marine and he came to me and he said, oh, Kim, I, I want to bring, I want to fly people from all over the world to have these get to know you conversations. And I kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, <laughs> come on, people. Do we really have to teach this? And he said, yes, it is our job to teach it. And, and in part because some people really genuinely don't know how to have these conversations. Other people know how, but they think they're not supposed to do it at work. Mm -hmm. And other people are going to get creepily personal when you have these <laughs> yeah. conversations. And so beginning to have this conversation and being very explicit about it, I think we tend to assume that leadership and caring are innate attributes that people mm -hmm. have. And it's not true. These are skills that we can learn. And, and these are hard skills that yield real uh, financial impact as well as just being the right the right thing to do. And so I think it's really important to remember that. And I think you said the two words there, Kim, right? You said financial impact and the right thing to do. And some more of the words you use is enlightened self-interest. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, I think that the, you know, one of the, one of the things that 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 people mistakes that people often make when they are in the role of being the upstander when they're intervening when they notice something was was that was said or done that was it was bias it was prejudice it was bullying and they want to intervene in some ways which is a great instinct but one of the ways that people make a mistake is they think that it's their job to stand up for someone who they are stronger than. And then all of a sudden, the intervention becomes almost like a, an act of dominance as opposed to an act of solidarity. And so, you know, and this makes itself manifest in the, in, in the white savior complex. It makes itself manifest in the, you know, damsel in distress, I'm the knight in shining armor. And so you want to make sure that when you are intervening, you understand that what you're doing is is you are creating a better working environment for everyone. It's not like I'm strong, you're weak, and so I'm going to do something for you. It's it's mm -hmm. about 
creating a better, a more collaborative work environment. And I, you know, I think that there's, it's really important to try to measure the impact of, of getting this right. But I think it's also uh, important to remember that we, we do the right thing because it is the right thing. Yeah. And this was, I would love to get your, your all's thoughts on this. This was something I really struggled with in the book. I mean, I don't want to minimize the importance of doing the right thing for its own sake, but I also don't want to neglect to mention the impact that we can have uh, on our organizations and on our results by doing the right thing. Uh, brutal ineffectiveness is bad because it's brutal and it's bad because it's ineffective. And that's kind of what we call the opposite of just work. What is just work? I feel like we know because we've read your book, but maybe out there, out in the audience, I've just calibrated. We've been referencing just work and they might not actually know what we're talking about. So do you guys yes. want to just maybe bring our audience up to speed so that we can help them understand what you're referring to? Well, I'll let Kim go over the two by two very quickly before we get into the root causes, because Kim Scott believes all the world's problems can be solved with the two by two. Kim <laughs> is the queen of the two by twos. I love a good two by two. So just work is what happens when we optimize for collaboration instead of giving in to the instinct to coerce. Mm -hmm. And when we optimize for respecting everyone's individuality instead of demanding conformity. And this seems sort of like obvious. I, I, I've worked with a lot of different kinds of leaders and I've never met anyone who says, oh yeah, I want to build a 1984 style, everybody's marching in lockstep kind of conformist environment. Yeah. We all think we want to respect one another's individuality, but Trier will talk to us in a second about what are the things that get in the way of that. And I, I also think that there's pretty widespread understanding that telling people what to do, that coercing people, that command and control does not yield great innovation. It doesn't yield the best results. And so you really want to optimize. Collaboration is humanity's superpower. So you want to you want to optimize for collaboration. And yet we do, without even meaning to, begin to build systems that are coercive rather than optimizing for collaboration. So how does this happen? What are the root causes of, yeah. the, pro of, of the things that drive us in the wrong direction? So we named the root causes of workplace injustice to be bias, prejudice, and bullying. And the simple definitions that we use is bias is not meaning it. So unconscious mm -hmm. prejudice is meaning it. It's a conscious belief that you have of a stereotype or, or some other negative, you know, a thought. And, um, and then you have bullying, which is being mean with the intent of art. Yeah. Right. Aggressive. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it really, it's even just so powerful of having these simple definitions to detangle the, this harm. I mean, before I read Kim's book, if you were to ask me, Treyer, have you ever been bullied in your career? I would say, no. Have you met me? Like you come to <laughs> you, right? But, and then Kim goes, well, bullying is just being mean. And, and, you know, this is bias and prejudice. And it's like, wow, I have actually been bullied a lot in my career, but I didn't have the language on how to mm. do it. I never stood up for myself. I never held an organization or a leader accountable to fix it. And so empowering folks with the language, with the shared language of what this is and then what to do when we find ourselves in these situations um, is what can really help us root this out in the organizations. 
because if you can't name it, you can't solve it. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other part that, you know, we have to talk about is the power dynamic. So what happens when power is introduced into the equation, particularly with our leaders in these organizations is that when we have a situation where there's bias or prejudice, and then power is also introduced, it creates the conditions for discrimination. Versus when we have bullying plus power, it creates the conditions for harassment. And then finally, you have physical touch and power is where you get those physical violations. And so we again, we can't ignore the dynamic of power and how that can corrupt our teams and our organizations and how quickly, you know, a prejudice situation can turn into discrimination. Um, like, for example, I worked in an organization where we didn't move forward and hire someone, a black woman that wore her natural hair out because the hiring manager thought it was unprofessional and they couldn't be put in front of the business. So this hiring manager, who is a white woman, thought that hiring a black woman who wore their natural hair out, that's a prejudice. Like they believe that, right? Because they were a hiring manager and they had that power of the hiring decision, that quickly it turns into discrimination. Wow. I feel like this is so good for our people to be learning about this matrix. Everybody out there, you got to get this book. So you have that matrix in your back pocket, but that's where I want to fly with you all next. See, I caught it that time. Yeah. <laughs> brain training me and educated me. This is my favorite Goal kind of is interview. a very inclusive term. <laughs> I've been told not to use that one, actually, from an really? inclusivity step, I swear. So this is something that I'm going to start saying. Which one? You all. Y'all. Yeah. Because it's very, like, I guess, proprietary to Texas. And I don't know. Oh, no. It's, it's <laughs> the whole South. I'm from Tennessee, and I grew up. Texas doesn't get it. This is this is, this is is one of my classmates, actually, at Princeton, who is from Texas. And he caught me saying that, and he was like, you can't say that. You're not from Texas. I was like, uh, okay. That's, well, that's, I'm going to call BS on that. I backed, I backed up real fast. But uh, I want to go back to because you you referenced it a second ago, Kim, and I love that you called these skills hard skills, because I think one of the things Rob and I are in the trenches with day in and day out is trying to help people understand this soft skills area that we're really riffing on today. Isn't that soft? Right. So. Right. So I'm curious if you could share with our leaders out there, you know, where do they begin? What are those skills that they really need to start developing today? If this is new space for them and they're a little trepidatious, right? And self-doubting in terms of even taking that first step. What are some of those skills that you would suggest that they really start to practice and, and develop in their own lane? You know, I think the first one is the one that that Trier just outlined, learning how to interrupt or disrupt bias in the moment. This is really hard to do. I mean, it's it's a form of feedback, mm-hmm. but it is a, a particularly important form of feedback and a particularly uncomfortable form mm-hmm. of feedback because you've got to do this in perf- in 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 public. Mm-hmm. Usually I say you want to criticize in private and and you want to praise in public. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to disrupting bias, you got to do it in public. And so it it is very counterinstinctive. Mm-hmm. In fact, most management st- most management techniques that you need to use, most management skills are actually so hard. Uh, because they are counterintuitive, counterinstinctive. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's what we're, we're we. It's the last thing we want to do. Right. And right. 
So it's hard in that it's difficult, but they're also hard skills in that they result in real positive impact on your Mm -hmm. ability to achieve results. Because when you have a team that where 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 a, a particular bias is preventing that team from communicating well, from collaborating well, from hiring the right people, from mm-hmm. paying people equitably, from promoting people, the right people, the people who, who are going to be best suited for the, those roles, then you're not going to achieve the same kind of results as when you have a team who's who's willing to interrupt those biases so that you are doing the right thing, so that you are making, because biases skew our decision making. Mm-hmm. And if we want to make better decisions, like that's going to yield some some positive ROI. So yeah. I think beginning to to understand the ROI of of getting this stuff right is is really important. I love it. And Trier, since you're the systems engineer, and I'm also a reformed engineer, (laughs) like Kim mentioned that we have to set up systems in place to be effective in making this just work a reality. Can you walk us through some of those systems and like how do leaders or how should leaders start thinking about that? So one of the things that we discuss in the framework is how do we, what do leaders do as a solution to overcome and prevent the discrimination from occurring in their organizations? And so we talk about measuring bias, which you can go into, it would shock you the the organizations that we go into and we talk about measuring bias. And these are leaders that are data-driven, data-driven, have every data and metric behind their sales, their revenue, their product, their consumers but are so reluctant to measure the bias within their own organization across the employee life cycle for their own people, because it's there. And here's the other thing that we tell, you know, again, I'm all about managing expectations. It's not good news, right? But at least you know where it is so you can go and solve it again when you know where the problem is. And so why would we, again, when organizations, we are so quick to go and find those areas of opportunities for growth within opportunity, missed opportunities and revenue, missed opportunities on the product or, or getting to our consumers. But we don't think about that for our own talent, which is the most important, you know, it's the most important capital that an organization has, because no matter what your problem is that you're going to solve, people have to do it. So mm-hmm. we have to measure that bias. And so doing it across the life cycle from, you know, attracting to hiring, to onboarding, to engaging, retaining, and even offboarding. And, you know, we, we actually hold, we, we've had workshops and we're going to be in San Francisco with Lattice, one of our partners, literally talking about this for a half day of like, how do we measure our bias? And the thing is, is that when you measure it and and it's been really good, the one that we just did in New York of seeing where folks are getting it right and where there's opportunities for um, improvement, we're seeing more and more organizations measure their bias on their hiring, right? Okay, who are we interviewing? Who's making it to the interview, the, the hiring stage? Who's getting offers? And then we're hearing folks talk about pay equity, but there's a difference between finding those gaps versus actually correcting those gaps, right? Um, but there's so many other things like, who are we promoting? Who are we investing in from a learning and development perspective? Who are we providing mentors? Who's getting those, those 
that seat at client dinners as we're all going back into face-to-face engagements, right? And there's so many different ways, again, that we can lead with data to help us inform solutions that we can put into place to do better. Talking my language now. (laughs) (laughs) Very (laughs) data-driven. So like a, a, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. A specific example of that is Salesforce, for example, decided that they were going to measure, they were going to measure pay, the pay gap, the gender pay gap. And, and the CEO said, oh, you know, we're, we're a meritocracy. This couldn't be happening. But of course, once they broke the data down, it was happening. And to his credit, he fixed it in terms of, of salary. Uh, but he, they didn't fix it in terms of equity, which of course is where people, the real wealth is, uh, is generated in tech. And so it is, it, you know, it's, we, we, we've got to fix it and we've got to fix it across pay across equity, across sort of, are, are we making sure that we're giving everybody the same kind of benefits? Because some people may get benefits that other people don't get. They may negotiate those. And so making sure that not we're not reflecting and reinforcing the bias that is in the pay gap that is in, the, it's really not just bias, it's discrimination once it becomes a pay gap that's in the market uh, is really important. And we have to think comprehensively about this because organizations are focused so much on the diversity, the representation part. But if we're not being equitable and inclusive in their experience when they actually get into the organization, it makes no sense. So it's a waste. And that's also why, you know, we tell our clients and tell folks that I actually think that diversity recruiting is actually pretty, it should be pretty straightforward and easy for organizations. Because I have a belief that most underrepresented professionals in a lot of our industries are surviving, not thriving in their organizations. They're looking for something better. And if you can actually create that inclusive and equitable experience and let them know that it's there, they will come. Because Uh it's really hard in these organizations that are saying, we want to hire more women. We want to hire more Hispanic Latina folks. We want to hire more queer professionals. And then they get there and it's just like, this doesn't feel good. Right. Hard. I'm experiencing the bias, the prejudice, the bullying, the discrimination, the harassment. I need to go somewhere else. What, What else is out there? And so we need to focus on that equitable, inclusive experience first, and then think about how are we bringing folks to actually experience that within our companies. This is one of the top reasons reported during this whole great resignation thing as to why those feet be walking out the door and not even looking back over their damn shoulder, right? And yeah. I kind of feel like we were just talking to William on Friday, um, the advisor to the CTO at Microsoft, and they're doing incredible things around uh, DEI, right? Their whole LEAP program. So, but we were talking about how the disruption of the last two years has actually accelerated this thing because now. I don't even know how you, your head can be in the sand anymore in regards to the, the quality of experience that you're fostering in your work environment um, after seeing what our people had to sustain and navigate their way through. So I'm kind of curious as to what it is that you guys see in all of this, because I know what we've been saying. <laughs> you all, you all, thank you. I'm putting my, 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 we're ready my, now. <laughs> I know we're going to be using this one in all our locker rooms. I have a feeling I got my anchor on my screen now, but 
But I want to know, because what we've been saying on this show is that we see this like seam that we're, we're trying to rip wide open, right? This opportunity, because all of this that's broken in our leadership foundations has kind of been exposed, right? And so, yeah, if we're talking about the great resignation, which the stats don't lie, right? This is like the biggest turnover that we've ever seen. And this is exactly what ranks at the top of the list in terms of the people that are being polled as to what it is that they're looking for in their future employment. They are looking for workplaces where they feel safe and they feel seen and they feel valued, right? So I'm just kind of curious to hear from our experts in the room, where do you see the biggest opportunities in all this disruption as it pertains to accelerating all of this fabulous work around DEI? Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that when this doesn't go well, it, it really harms underrepresented people, but it also harms everyone. Mm -hmm. So for example, if, if you've got bullying happening in your organization mm -hmm. and, and if it, it, you know, if the person I, I was speaking with someone who's, who's a, a white man and there was another white man who was bullying people in, in a meeting and he said it woke him up at 3 a.m. You know, he also, because he felt slimed by this person's bad behavior and he didn't know how to respond. And, and now, so, so now everyone in, in, in the meeting, except for the person doing the bullying, was harmed. And, and it hurt that team's ability to collaborate. So you want to remember that as a leader, one of your jobs is to create consequences for bullying, to recognize it and to create consequences for it. You want to create conversational consequences. You want to teach everyone. There's like a different sort of way to respond to bias, prejudice, and bullying. And if it's bullying, you want to respond with a you statement. You can't talk to me like that or what's going on for you here. And you want to teach people. I learned this from my daughter, actually, when she was in third grade. She was getting bullied. And I told her to use what, what's often called an I statement. I feel sad when you blah, 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 blah. And she banged her fist on the table. And she said, Mom, they are trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell them they succeeded? And I thought, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you want to you use a you statement and teach people to use this so that there are conversational consequences. So people know how to shut that bullying down. You also want to create compensation consequences. Very often, bullies don't, they don't get penalized for their bullying. In fact, they get rewarded. They get high ratings and bonuses because they, they do achieve results with their bullying for themselves, but they hurt everybody else's. So they hurt more than they help but they only get the rewards for themselves. And so they're, of course they're gonna continue that. So you wanna make sure you're creating compensation consequences and you wanna create career consequences. You do not wanna promote someone to manager who is guilty of bullying others on a regular basis. Uh, there, there comes a moment in, in every team's history when the assholes begin to win. And that's when the culture begins to lose. So you wanna make sure as a leader that you're creating these consequences for bullying because it happens all the time and it will destroy your team's ability to collaborate. It's funny, Kim, the, the data backs that up. When we were looking at a study a few months ago out of the UK and they said around 
was like 52% of victims leave and the consequences, basically the bully has no consequence. Yeah. And the victims are the ones who are leaving. Yeah. Getting and also or, the observers. Yeah. I mean, it's unpleasant to sit there in a meeting and like you feel slimed by the bad behavior, even if it's, even if you, you know, are, are a, a bystander. Nobody wants to. So you also want to teach your people how to be upstanders when they notice it. So this really, what really begins with that leader having that desire to be the person who steps in and starts to call in. I think we said was the way that you guys call refer to that, bias, not call out, yeah, yeah. Call, to call that in, but but so to sort of be that coach in the room, right? That is turning on the lights of self awareness so that there can be some form of discussion in and around disrupting that pattern. Yeah, leaders have a, an important role to play, but they can't do it alone. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, they, they, you know, it's important for leaders to teach people how to have these bias disruptors. Mm-hmm. It's important for leaders to create sort of a code of conduct so that you can address prejudice. And it's important for leaders to to create consequences for but, but they can't do it alone. But we need upstanders. Uh, we need to teach when, when we're harmed, we need to teach people not to just always default to silence. You have a right, of course, to be not to speak up. It's not your job to educate people when, when they're harming you. Mm-hmm. But but I think, too, at least for me and my career, too often I, I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything at all. Mm-hmm. And that left me, like, losing a sense of agency. And that was really mm-hmm. damaging. Yeah, but I love that with the flag, it sort of gamifies it, right? And makes it kind of a fun way for everybody to be involved in that disruption. Yes. So I'm curious, because we've got two of y'all in the room right now, and I like to pull out the big guns uh, and ask this question to our guests, but I want to make sure I give ample time for both of y'all to respond. So The question is, what do you want your legacy to be? All this amazing, game-changing work that you're doing in and around um, just work. What do you want the legacy of that to be? Think on it. It's okay. I'll start. I'll start, and then, uh, and then, and then, uh, and then, Trier has words of wisdom for us. For me, what I really hope is that we can learn as uh, as human beings to tell each other's stories in a way that creates a sense of solidarity so that we are really collaborating. I think th- there is right now in our world this tendency to use communication uh, to, to, gra- to coerce others, to dominate others. And I think if we can learn to use communication to better collaborate with each other to find the best way forward, there's nothing we can't do as human beings. But if we allow ourselves to devolve into this sort of coercive, conformist way of communicating, there is no horror we won't sink to. Let that hang and marinate. Um, I, I, I laugh when you ask that question because I recently was talking about legacy to uh, my sister and 
some people think legacy of like putting their name on a building and 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 I think that others just think about legacy of like impact and change regardless of if it's attributed to someone. But what I've been thinking about a lot recently was I saw a tweet of a black American woman that moved from the US to Europe. And the tweet said, you know, someone was saying, hey, I asked her, does she ever miss the US or would she think about moving back? And she said, no, because I spent, I've spent my entire life, every day of my life in the United States, exerting energy to let people know that I matter. And that to, to basically to express and show and demonstrate my humanity so that people would see it. And I think about that a lot that I have spent my entire life as a black woman demanding that my humanity be seen as a black person in the U S and that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so there's no silver bullet or solution. Like we all there's it's systemic and there's Mm -hmm. so many things that we need to do, but I want my part to be that in the workplace that people don't have to exert the energy for their humanity to be seen. And I do believe that we can get there. And a lot of times people spend more time at work than they do at home with their families. So if we can make these changes in people's behaviors and minds at work, I do believe that that translates to outside into our communities um, and again, continues this, this, this work that we all need to do together as a nation. I don't imagine it happening in my lifetime, but I do hope that the work that we're doing, I know that our, the work that we're doing will, will be a part of that. I love, I love it. That. I love it. And so for everyone out there, if you're looking to get a copy of Just Work, which we would totally recommend, mm-hmm. you can head on over to justworktogether.com. There's, or slash the book, we'll post it in the podcast notes as well. Or you can, there's an audio book too, which is totally what I've been listening to at the gym. Um, so definitely hit that as well. And then obviously, if you haven't yet, you can check out Radical Candor also by Kim Scott as well. And for all things, just work, justworktogether.com. There, Trier, Kim, is there anywhere else you want folks to follow you? You can follow us on Twitter at Just Work Book uh, and, uh, and keep in touch. We really, we have a, a section on our website where you can tell us your stories. I think when th- there's evidence that from fMRI studies that when we tell each other stories, our brains literally get on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. And so we want to build community around these ideas. Trier, where else should people follow us? Um, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter, but you know, there's also a talk to us page on the website, ask questions, and we'd love to work with leaders, organizations, teams. And um, it's also exciting to just hear when there's teams and leaders that are putting this into practice and, and working on it. You know, we just had a call this morning with a book club that's putting this into practice and it's working in their, their diversity book club. And so now they're like, how do we get this to across the entire company? So keep, keep going, keep creating those purple flags. Um, 
you know, they have their pink flag because that's their main color for the company. So they throw pink flags to call each other in on their bias. But we really just want to also end the default to silence. So to say, so you know to say what you don't know what to say, do when you don't know what to do, and end the default to silence. I love it. And obviously for us, for everyone listening, please hit subscribe to Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform and all things leadership development, high-performance coaching, psych safety, and more. Head on over to EliteHighPerformance.com. Susan, is there anything you want to leave us with today? I'm so grateful that y'all brought this little new system for me to play with. I can't help but but be able to extrapolate that in terms of how I can accelerate the work that we're doing in our locker rooms with our leadership teams, trying to empower them because our entry point into all this leadership 2.0 stuff is mindset, right? And teaching them how to disrupt those limited beliefs. So this, this tool is going to go real far in terms of helping us to really play our biggest impact game in the way that we're trying to, which is we're on a mission to change the way the game of business is being played forever. And I feel like this interview did a fabulous job of helping us understand, right? We're either making this, this situation worse or we're making the situation better. That choice is in the hands of every single one of you leaders out there who's listening right now. So I hope we made that, that choice a little bit easier for you to make right now as you hit the ground running with this stuff in your locker rooms. I love it. And it's about making that choice. Mm-hmm. And I'll leave us with a, another quote, as always, as I'm wont to do, um, from Shantideva, an 8th century Indian Buddhist scholar. And he said, we are not here to change the world. The world is here to change us. And we see this as saying, if we want to change the world, we must start by changing ourselves within. And a common thread through this interview was both starting to see ourselves and our impact on others, and also calling out and being courageous leaders in calling in other people in these events or moments in time where they may be reflecting an environment that we do not want to Um, support. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we need to start with ourselves, with self-awareness, with empathy and compassion, and really lean in and create the world that we all want to become. Kim, Trier, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all. Uh, I'm sure when you have another book, we'll (laughs) we'll have you back on the show. Um, But yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much and eager to help you and your folks roll these ideas out, put them into practice, make them real. Awesome. Everybody listening, thank you so much. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone.